right, it's the Foghorn, and that means it is time for the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, with a new Congress headed to Washington, what are some of the top priorities? Republican Representative Mike Gallagher, among others, wants to swing more support to building up not just the Navy, but the missiles, bombs, and bullets the fleet will need should deterrence fail. He'll, he will join us for a detailed discussion. But first, a look at naval news this week. In war news, an apparent attack October 29th by Ukrainian so-called kamikaze speedboat drones on the Russian naval base at Sevastopol, Crimea, seems to have done little actual damage. But video from the boats has caused intense interest. The video showed the boats maneuvering at high speed while Russian attack helicopters were shooting at them. The Russian frigate Admiral Makarov, among other warships, apparently was a target of the attack. Russian reports accused Ukraine of using marine unmanned vehicles for a terrorist attack aided by British experts. Russia also said that while the attack was repelled, it also caused minor damage. The Russian cruiser Varyag and destroyer Admiral Trebutz apparently are headed home to their Pacific Fleet base at Vladivostok after months of operations in the Mediterranean. The Varyag and sister ships Moskva in the Black Sea Fleet and Marshal Ustinov from the Northern Fleet converged in the Eastern Med in February as the Russians built up their forces to invade Ukraine. Moskva, of course, was sunk in April by a Ukrainian missile attack, while the other two cruisers operated in the Mediterranean. Marshal Ustinov left the area in August to return to her Northern Fleet base, and Varyag and Admiral Trubutz were in the Indian Ocean near Sri Lanka by November 2nd, accompanied by the oiler Boris Putuma. In the White Sea off northwest Russia, about November 2nd, the new Bori-A strategic missile submarine, Generalissimus Suvorov, launched a Bulova ballistic missile during sea trials. The launch was carried out while Suvorov was submerged. The Russian TASS news agency claimed that multiple warheads hit targets on the Kura training ground on the Kamchatka Peninsula. The U.S. strategic missile submarine USS Rhode Island arrived at Gibraltar on November 1st, another in an increasing number of public port visits by deployed U.S. Navy ballistic missile submarines. The visits are a deliberate effort by U.S. military commanders to signal deployed American nuclear strike assets. The aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford was at Halifax, Nova Scotia, October 28th to November 1st for its first international port call. The carrier was accompanied by multiple ships from her escort group, including frigates from Denmark, the Netherlands, Spain, and Germany. British media revealed this week that the carrier's next port of call will be at Portsmouth, England during mid-November. The visits of the Ford are attracting widespread interest in Canada and in Europe. In the Mediterranean, the deployed carrier USS George H.W. Bush arrived at Split, Croatia on November 3rd for a port visit while her escorting cruiser USS Leyte Gulf arrived at Dubrovnik on October 31st. Croatia is a regular port of call for U.S. Navy ships in the region who often carry out maintenance while in the country. And the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force is marking its 70th anniversary with an international fleet review. The event will take place November 6th, Japanese time, with ships from at least 14 nations taking part, 
Multiple heads of Navy also are in attendance, including U.S. Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Gilday. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. All right, it's time for our discussion part of the podcast, and we are fortunate to be joined by Congressman Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District. And we were talking before we came on, he may be our most visited podcast guest, uh, beating out a friend of the pod, Brian McGrath. Congressman, it is always great to have you on. Thanks for joining us. You know, I just would like to say, uh, with the caveat that I, I love Brian McGrath, uh, and every smart thing I've ever said on Sea Power has his fingerprints on it. I've, I've stolen from him essentially, but I, you know, McGrath just sits there in his palatial estate uh, and <laughs> tweets about it. Presumably, he has nothing but time to go on your podcast, which is sure. the fact that I'm beating him and I have a very demanding day job when he's just a pampered, highly paid sort of Sea Power consultant. I think is is really says something about Brian's work ethic. I, I think it does. You have guaranteed that this podcast will get shared by Brian McGrath in some form or fashion. So thank you very much for that. Um, let, let's jump in. We've got about 25 minutes and thank you again for joining us. Um, I wanna start with your remarks um, last month at uh, the Heritage event in which they rolled out their uh, report on the state of the military, but you also followed that up with a Wall Street Journal op-ed entitled The Anti-Navy the U.S. Needs Against the Chinese Military. Talk a little bit about what you mean, maybe for those that didn't read the op-ed, what do you mean by anti-Navy and, and what are the things that you listed in that op-ed uh, that the United States needs to focus on right now? Well, let me first say, I think there are two things that were more clearly specified in the longer speech version that I just didn't have time or room for in the in the op-ed version. One was this idea that time is not on our side. As we've talked about before on this podcast, uh, it's my working hypothesis that a confrontation with China over Taiwan is more likely within the you know so-called Davidson window. I've argued that we've entered the window of maximum danger. We don't need to rehash those arguments, but for a variety of reasons, uh, both domestic and international, I think uh, the world is conspiring to put us on a collision course with China over Taiwan in the short term. And therefore, the current defense strategy of divesting to invest, divesting of hard power in what the Pentagon admits is the decisive decade, right? This is the decisive decade, yet we're shedding hard power this decade to invest in technology that's not going to be ready until the 2030s. That doesn't make sense to me. And so I tried to tease that out um, and the second thing is, I think underlying that divest to invest approach is a, a set of what I would term uh, utopian delusions about the way the world works. Uh, I, I think we have uh, similar utopian delusions like those that um, were uh, that that existed in the interwar period. Uh, you know, I talked in the speech about you know the quixotic attempts to outlaw war at the end of the 1920s. Um, and, and things like that. So this the speech was mostly about that. But where the anti-Navy comes in is even in the best case scenario, let's say we get McGrath, Hendricks, U2, Montgomery, Brian, Brian Clark, all the, the sort of sea power super friends in a room, and we have a navalist president and a navalist secretary of defense and a, a kick butt secretary of the Navy, and we say, you guys have a month to come up with a plan and we're going to execute that plan violently. Even in that dream world, which I want to live in and which I will do my level best to bring about, it's still going to take a lot of time before we have a bigger ship presence or we have a maritime 
coherent maritime strategy in the Indo-Pacific. So the question then is, what's our hedging strategy to navigate the next five years? And the idea that I offered up is to take advantage of the fact that we're no longer bound by the INF Treaty to build what I call uh, an anti-Navy. And really the basic idea here is to flip the logic that the PLA has used against us because the PLA, you know, it's concerning that they've built the biggest Navy in the world, but it's really concerning that they built the rocket force, which is designed to target our Navy, keep us out of the first island chain. It puts them on the right side of the cost curve. How do we flip that logic against them and start to put their ships at risk for relatively low cost, start to confuse their targeting and start to make them think twice about trying to make a move on Taiwan so we can push this thing out to the 2030. So I'll pause there. That's sort of the idea underlying it. And then you guys can tell me what I got wrong. It's hard to argue, especially using the lessons learned out of Ukraine. I, I think if, if you know, this time last year, you would have introduced this. I, I think there would be an argument that, hey, you know, may, maybe that causes conflict or maybe um, that wouldn't be seen as the right approach. Um, but I think the lessons that we learned out of Ukraine and what you talk about in the article at least the two biggest for me would be that one, it's hard to get weapons into a country that's under attack. And two, it's hard to crank up uh, the manufacturing um, after the fact, right? I mean, you, you know, just in time or after the fact weapons is really tough. What sort of feedback have you received either from industry or for the Navy, from the Navy on um, these ideas? Ha have you had any conversations uh, since um, the speech and since the op-ed? Uh, not not from the Navy. You know, as we've talked about before, the Navy is 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 unwilling to even sort of uh, work with me on the, the Title 10 fix, which I think is in, in their interest. So uh, and the, it, it was sort of like pulling teeth to get the Navy to to brief my colleagues. I still haven't gotten a brief on on Global 14, you know, the Navy's uh, war game from last year, which is already overcome by events. So I always feel like Jerry Maguire with the Navy. It's like, help me help you. Um, you can't, you went, so you can't get a brief from the Navy on this. Well, I, I, unless there's something weird going on behind the scenes with our staffs, I'm willing to fly. Indeed. I went to, to Newport uh, two weeks after it happened, hoping right. to get a full brief. I got sort of like a little bit, but they were doing an official report and that it's been a year since that, or uh, I, you know, almost a year since that, that happened. So no, and, and honestly, the fight I've been fighting with Elaine Luria the last few years is okay. Open up the books. It can be in classified fashion where we can't talk about it on canvas shifts, but just tell us what your war plans look like just in simple fashion, just specify. Here's what we think the PLA is going to do. Here's what we're able to do. Here's sort of the assumptions underlying this. Here's what we don't have. That's what we need your, your, your help with Congress. That That's never happened, but the feedback, I think the the I, the concept, though, um, you know, folks like uh, Admiral Mark Montgomery quibble with the phrase, uh, the concept of an anti-Navy is intuitive to people. So I think your layman reading it sort of, even if they're not steeped in INF, Navy issues kind of gets it. I think the, the intelligent criticism I've heard from McGrath and others is a concern over the cost uh, of these systems. And to the extent we're we're focusing on this, does it deep, uh, does it does it uh, lessen our focus on things that are more relevant for actual war fighting, i.e. subs and and uh, long range bombers. Um, and I, I would suggest it's it's not an either or. I view these as, as part of a, 
an overall strategy. And really, if you look at what I laid out, there's really three steps. I think the first two are, are unobjectionable. The core of this is arming Taiwan itself. And that, as you say, Chris, it is, is the lesson of Ukraine. You need to arm your allies before the shooting starts. And that's actually more important in Taiwan because it's going to be more difficult to resupply Taiwan as an island than it is to resupply Ukraine. So we've had all this bipartisan happy talk about arming Taiwan to the teeth. We actually need to do it. And I genuinely believe that that's something we can get done in divided government. I think that's a bipartisan thing that with robust oversight of the executive branch, we can, for example, clear the backlog of $14 million worth of uh, foreign military sales, $14 billion worth of foreign military sales uh, that uh, have been purchased by Taiwan but not delivered, get creative with harpoon missile systems, things like that. So that that to me, that inner ring, even for the skeptics, I think the wisdom of that inner ring is, is self-evident and unobjectionable. The second step I'm calling for is, again, drawing upon what you referenced, uh, one of the lessons of Ukraine is to avoid going Winchester during war, we need to build out our munitions industrial base. And I, I, I tried to sort of suggest, okay, can we draw upon the lessons of Operation warp speed? Can we actually use the Defense Production Act for something that is defense related as opposed to baby formula to build out our defense industrial base? Can we get over the skepticism of multi-year procurement authorities by the appropriators to provide that for key munition systems? And I, I think that's something we're going to have to do in the next Congress. Now, I do think we can quibble with kind of the third ring or third element uh, of, of the strategy, which is how do we get the basing agreements in the first island chain, in the second island chain, and then certainly when we're talking about you know a longer range intermediate uh, missile system with advanced energetics, either in the northern territory of Australia or in our own territory in Alaska, how do we how do we get the technology ready to go? And there, I just want to highlight one thing, which I don't think I, I really specified in the op-ed. There was a, a report that came out a couple of years ago about the state of our energetics industry. So these are the things that make weapons go right, propellants explosives, pyrotechnics, your, your listeners, the, the millions of listeners uh, uh, should, should read that report. I, I, I found it enlightening and, and really it identifies how brittle our energetics and outdated our energetics industrial base is, single source domestically or foreign source in some cases to China. And there we have an opportunity because the technology is not that advanced to take a quantum leap forward in terms of energetics and, and really leverage some of our partnerships that are working well the AUKUS partnership in particular, I think we need to figure out how to get over all of our ITARs roadblocks to turbocharge technological development with the Aussies and the Brits going forward, particularly when it comes to these missile systems. So, you know, you're, 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 you're joining the, the chorus, the ever increasing chorus of people saying, buy more munitions. We need, we need more missiles. We need more bombs. We need all that stuff. The stuff that actually gets shot at the enemy as opposed to carriers. And this has been building for years. It's it it is it is very much a theme that that you're you're hearing everywhere now. I was just submarine league symposium this week for two days. You're absolutely hearing that. You know they're they're talking about we're building more for Mark forty eight torpedoes now. Um, at last, after a long hiatus uh, of not increasing that inventory, still these things take take time, and you can't necessarily buy time. SM six missiles, which which are one of the most effective missiles carried by ships now um raytheon builds these they've told me repeatedly that at the moment it's taking them three years from the time you order a missile 
to delivery, delivery of an all-up round, that's three years at all-out speed, all-out warp speed with all their suppliers. They've told me repeatedly they can get that down to to a year and a half. That's still a year and a half. If you and this is stuff that if there is a conflict, it gets used up incredibly fast. It always does. And within three, five days, you're out of missiles. You have all these really nice ships and aircraft with not, not much to carry anymore. So it's incredibly important. Um, I'm glad to hear this. Uh, you, you, you didn't address that specifically about in terms of, well, you did, you did some of this in your op-ed. Um, this has been rising in recent defense requests, presidential defense requests, including the last administration. But there's more that can be done. Whatever the outcome of the, of, of the election now, you're still going to have to work with a Democratic president who submits the budget. Yeah. And you can't just, I mean, you know, the opposition party to the president always complains about the budget, always does, never, doesn't matter who's there. Um, what, do, what do you think your chances are in Congress right now, looking ahead to what you expect to see, of increasing those those munitions well beyond. I mean, we have all the drawdowns coming. You're you're calling for drawdowns. The, the drawdown authority, which is now part of the our, our uh, the U.S. Ukraine plan, which takes existing stocks for the U.S. military of missiles and munitions, ships them off to Ukraine. Obviously, we're 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 depleting U.S. stocks. You want to add ta- Taiwan to that, further depleting U.S. stocks of munitions. Roger that it moves it forward in, in, into a potential combat zone, but you're depleting the U.S. Um, so it's going to take time to do that, but time is, is wasting. You got to start. You got to, you have to start to start the pipeline. What do you think your chances are dramatically increasing that? I mean, you know, triple SM6 awards right now. That's right. Whatever, whatever they ask for, put a three in front of it and uh, let, let's work from there. Well, I think um, maybe a cause for cautious optimism is the fact that um, key administration officials, uh, Dr. LaPlante in particular, I think from what I've heard from him are, are on the same page in terms of both the urgent need to build out our munitions industrial base, as well as the role that multi-year procurement authority would play in that. And when you have sort of the, when you're not fighting against the administration, uh, that helps things out. Now, that being said, you know, obviously, this is nested in a in a national defense strategy and a DOD right now that, as I, I started off my remarks by saying, is seems seems uh, um, focused on um, cutting uh, conventional hard power in favor of unproven uh, technology uh, that's not going to be ready within the next five years. But that being said, there are sort of I think areas where we can work together. The biggest divide, as I alluded to, is really not between Democrats. And Republicans on this issue, it's between authorizers and appropriators. And that's really, I think most people don't understand it when it comes to defense issues. I mean, that is the sort of fundamental divide in Congress. I would go further and say that is the source of most dysfunction in Congress. The division debates dates back to the days when John Quincy Adams uh, was in Congress. And it makes no sense uh, to me at all. But that being said, in a Republican controlled house, the top dog on Defense Appropriations Committee is going to be Ken Calvert. Ken gets it. Uh, he's a, a smart guy. Uh, I've talked to him about this issue. I want to be his best friend. I want to personally bridge this divide between the authorizers and the appropriators. So I'm actually cautiously optimistic that at least when it comes to munitions, um, we can start to get things done. Ultimately, and this is where I have 
I have let I, I I need help, I guess, from you guys, from from your listeners. Even if like let's say Lockheed, I think uh, the CEO made a comment that they can it'll take them two years to get from. 2,100 javelins to 4,000 javelins annually. The problem is we've talked about when I discussed my longer article, Battle Force 2025, is there's long lead items in all of these missile systems that take you know, a long, long time to get. So you need to start buying those in bulk on the front end. Engines Even if you get that. Primarily. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you're going to need, I think you're going to need more people in the munitions business. So how do you get, how do you get an Anduril to play in that game? Now they're starting to play in loitering munitions. How do you get, you know, not, not just Lockheed's and Raytheon's, but how do you make it a sound investment for capital and new companies to get into that space? That's a longer term project. That's a harder thing to fix. But again, I think with multi-year procurement, with a strong demand signal from the top of the Pentagon that these aren't going to be the, you know, the bill payer for something else. This is something we're going to prioritize. I think you can start to see that. But again, even in your best case scenario, this is something that would be solved over the course of a FITIP not over the course of a, a single year, but I do think there's progress we can make even in divided uh, government in the next Congress. So one of the major lessons that is coming out of the Ukraine-Russian war is the dramatic use of unmanned systems of all kinds on all sides, cheap stuff, expensive stuff, innovative stuff. Some of it is stuff that's been around for a long time. Some of it is stuff that's really you know, the first time we've seen it in the open, which includes some of these uh, unmanned surface drones, these little, little, like 14 foot speedboats, essentially packed with explosives running around in the harbor of Sevastopol. Pretty cool stuff um, and also pretty effective. Um, there's endless opposition on the Hill, it seems to me, to a lot of the Navy's efforts to develop unmanned. And of course, unmanned is a, that's a broad topic of all kinds of things. But um, this endless, you know, we want more testing, we want more reliability, we want all kinds of things, which in many cases, in my view, display an ignorance of things going on elsewhere in the world. And there, but there's this opposition. The Navy's been trying to go forward with a lot of this stuff. They get blocked by the Hill. What do you, I mean, and, and, and that, that, by the way, the, the, big, the biggest blockage I know is, is a Republican on the Senate side. Where do, can you? Who is it? Are we allowed to name that person? Yeah, I'm not going to do that right now. Okay, but um, I'll find out. <laughs> I I don't think it's going to be a surprise. But um, what can you? I mean, is it? Uh, you're talking about finding what fi finding asymmetric possibilities that we can develop now. We can field now to really mess with people. The Chinese, by the way, are doing an awful lot of, in this area as well, and counter counter UAV, counter USV, counter UUV um, systems are also growing and growing and this is a whole other area that people don't want to talk about a whole lot what can you do to really pump that up to 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 unblock a lot of these areas and a lot of the i mean it's it, it really is coming from the hill i, I totally agree it? yes and, and from some people i greatly admire on the house side as well have expressed skepticism over right. lusv musv and so maybe the distinction we need to make is between sort of those bigger navy platforms and between sort of a short-term crash program largely drawing upon commercial technology. And as I understand the Sevastopol attack, a lot of it is is COTS technology right. being used on this kamikaze boat. I had a separate op-ed about a month ago, which basically I, I took Mike Brown's great testimony before he left DIU 
where he outlines a fast follower strategy for how we can leverage commercial technology and tried to highlight that. I think it's a sensible way forward where we can really start to do some creative things. And maybe the sweet spot to get over the skepticism is to also say, well, this is something we're going to do to help arm our partners uh, in Taiwan. It's not going to be sort of the new Navy, U- U.S. Navy fleet. But we've we've made no advances as far as I can tell when it comes not only to anti-ship missiles that put on Taiwan proper, uh, but also smart minds. Uh, I've been trying to figure out who who who's the smart mind person. What, what are we doing there? As yet, I cannot identify. That seems to be um, a huge opportunity for us, as well as sort of leveraging some of the unmanned systems that we've seen put to devastating effect in Ukraine. Let me go further. And just because I like being provocative on your podcast. I would say if you gave me and all the Sea Power super friends uh, and maybe some other uh, Boyd-esque thinkers $5 billion and the backing of, of a president who is serious about defending Taiwan and thereby uh, preventing World War III, uh, such that we could cut through the risk aversion endemic in the acquisition uh, uh, army that we have in DOD, right. I think we could defeat the PLA invasion of Taiwan for $5 billion. That, that is my working hypothesis right now, creatively leveraging some of the platforms. Now, where that might break down, where that might break down, because I can hear the, the, the McGrath devil on my shoulder in my ear right now is that, okay, you can defeat the initial invasion. How do you sustain that? Because the Chinese are not going to give up after they get their first bloody nose and gone are the days where we can just simply rely upon you know the american model of freedom's forge where we're going to have a couple years to turn car factories into bomber plants and, and things like that so again we have kind of an industrial base problem and what makes our our new cold war i think more difficult than the old is the industrial advantage redounds right now uh, to china and we're so thoroughly entangled with them and dependent on them for key systems but i do think there's a lot we can do creatively to really make them think twice and give the Taiwanese the tools they need to defend themselves. The final thing I'd say, ultimately, having gone in preparation for this speech, went through kind of the, the history of the first three Taiwan Strait crises, as well as just deterrence throughout the Cold War, the, the Alexander George and, and Smoke volume is probably the best on that. I do think ultimately it's going to require more American hard power uh, on Taiwan. So uh, as as we sort of clarify strategic ambiguity, it should open up the door to more partnerships between active duty and National Guard units uh, to visit Taiwan, to train the Taiwanese armed forces and things like that. And I think that's the best thing we can do to make China think twice. And I think the reason deterrence failed in Ukraine is because we not only pulled American hard power out of the region, sent our ships sailing out of the Black Sea, but repeatedly signaled we were unwilling to use uh, military force. So I'll, I'll kind of finish up here. Um, I, I think you're absolutely on to it with your comments about time. I, I also think you're on to it about the idea that maybe uh, Bill LaPlante is the the huckleberry for, you know, your writing and your, your thinking. I mean, I, I think, you know, he has proven that he he understands that. What is the first 30, 90, whatever effort from a new Republican House, if, you know, polls hold true, how do you convince the administration and the Navy to get serious? Uh, you know, we're running short on time. I'll kind of let you, you, you leave with that. Well, I do think one, I think the theme for next year's NDAA will be um, how do we prevent 
the deterrence failure we saw in Ukraine from happening in Taiwan. And as I said before, I think with just basic oversight and a smart investment in key weapon systems, uh, we uh, we can do a lot to shore up near-term deterrence. And oh, by the way, if uh, the Biden administration wants to integrate soft power into deterrence, well, how about we integrate basing agreements with our treaty allies in the region, the Philippines and Japan, into our overall plan for the defense of Taiwan? And then the other thing I say is I, I do hope that armed with the majority and subpoena power, uh, at least I and some others will be able to get better insight into what our actual war plans over Taiwan uh, are. So that's point one. Point two, uh, the speaker, uh, soon to be Speaker McCarthy, uh, will create a select committee on China. And I think that can go a long way towards identifying those good legislative solutions that kind of fall into committee gaps and making sure they move forward. Um, and then the, the the final thing I'd say is I, on this divide between appropriators and authorizers, uh, let's let's I think you should just spend 10 minutes of every podcast praising Ken Calvert uh, in the hope that he'll he'll work with me uh, to to save the free world. But I, I am actually uh, optimistic uh, about that. Uh, and I look forward to McGrath coming on your podcast and telling me why I'm wrong about all this. You know, he's very it's very sensitive. You know, you don't really subscribe to his sea power view of the world, as I do. I think ninety eight point nine percent of the time, he just it's very sensitive. He's always right. I mean, that's that's it. That's his problem. You know, this is a problem dealing with other people. But, all right, uh, folks, this is uh, pretty much all the time we're going to have today. Uh, this has been a great discussion, sir. We really appreciate you coming on again. Uh, our guest has been a U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, one of the smartest people there is on Capitol Hill, and especially in terms of naval power and the the the, the importance of of the maritime domain. Always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now hear this, now hear this. You know what that means? It's time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cavus talks about the need to buy arms now. Thanks, Chris. As we've just heard from Congressman Gallagher, the need for the U.S. military to buy more weapons has, if one is to believe the dire warnings coming from a plethora of top defense leaders, never been greater. There are clear signals from without and within that President Xi Jinping's China is on an aggressive path that could lead to serious armed conflict, especially as the Chinese are growing increasingly confident that sometime soon they can take on and win in a war against the United States. We've been warning of the need to build up the Navy and not throw away existing ships simply because they're not what current planners envision, it's what's needed in the future. Some of those ships are truly worn out, and that includes some of the cruisers. But others, especially nearly new littoral combat ships with hardly any serious sea time under their keels, should not be budget-cutting disposal items. What we've seen from the Navy and Pentagon leaders is an unwillingness to adapt existing assets into more useful platforms that can harry and threaten Chinese intentions. A great example of the, are the littoral combat ships armed with the Naval Strike Missile, an advanced cruise missile that the Chinese clearly see as a distinct threat. LCSs deployed to the Western Pacific with NSM routinely draw not just the usual Chinese tail, a warship that closely watches the LCS throughout regions in the South China Sea and elsewhere. The Chinese double and even triple that tail to traipse around the Pacific following just one little old LCS. That's a drain on their resources and efforts. The U.S. doesn't publicize this for reasons that frankly are elusive. But that NSM armed LCS 
is a good example of a low-cost existing asset that can strongly signal U.S. intention to not let China run unchallenged throughout the Western Pacific. The LCSs exist now, but the Navy and top Pentagon leadership are intent on disposing of about half the existing fleet. This is incredibly short-sighted. So what if they didn't work as originally intended 20 years ago? They're here now, paid for, delivered, and in service. Find something useful to do with them now. Don't just throw them away for assets that won't be operationally available until the 2030s. And buy more missiles now. The history of modern warfare is conclusive and that when real shooting begins, ammunition expenditure is always far higher than pre-war budgets planned for. The lesson is on display every day in Ukraine, where Russia, assumed to have vast quantities of munitions of all types, is scratching and scrambling to keep pounding Ukraine with anything at hand. The U.S., along with other NATO allies, is sending to Ukraine large quantities of existing munitions, which so far are largely of the land launch type. But U.S. magazines will need to be replenished, and that's going to add to the industrial capacity problem. Throw in a similar effort to increase arms shipments to Taiwan, and the problem grows still more dire. The ships and aircraft now in service with the U.S. need ammunition to throw at the enemy. Ships and planes without missiles, bombs, and bullets are just ships and planes. As you've heard, it can take several years to produce just one modern missile. This week, I listened to Admiral Chaz Richard, commander of U.S. Strategic Command, issue a blunt and declarative warning. This Ukraine crisis that we're in right now, this is just the warm-up, Richard said. The big one is coming, and it isn't going to be very long before we're going to get tested in ways that we haven't been tested in a long time. Whatever happens with the November election, the new U.S. Congress and the Biden administration need to work together to provide a massive infusion of munitions to arm the U.S. military. And oh, by the way, stop throwing away perfectly good ships because you can't think of anything else to do with them. Amen to that. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.